This is the Shift Podcast. And Martin Strong sitting in for Shane this morning. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, do you ever feel like a phony at work? Do you feel like you don't belong in your field? You might be suffering from imposter syndrome. Dr. Valerie Young, an expert on imposter syndrome, tells us why nearly three out of five people experience imposter syndrome and how you can overcome it. Cybersecurity expert Hank the Hacker tells us how you can keep criminals from hacking into your key fob, plus why it's getting cheaper and easier for criminals to steal your cars. Are you okay with Big Macs? How about Starbucks? All of that on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Imposter syndrome, that feeling that even though you're successful, somehow you don't deserve it. You've just been able to fool everybody. It's really common. Some people you may know who admit to experiencing imposter syndrome from time to time include Tom Hanks, Tina Fey, even Lady Gaga. What about Albert Einstein? He is probably the most famous genius of all time. People actually say, you're a real Einstein. Sometimes they're sarcastic. But even Albert Einstein had his doubts about himself. He reportedly said to a friend when he was an elderly man, quote, the exaggerated esteem in which my life work is held makes me very ill at ease. I feel compelled to think of myself as an involuntary swindler. That's Albert Einstein. If you can't rest on those laurels, how are we going to cope? But we have someone who can help. Dr. Valerie Young is an expert on imposter syndrome. She's the co-founder of the Imposter Syndrome Institute. They have a website, impostersyndrome.com. And her book, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. It's been published in six languages. Dr. Young, thanks for being here. It's great to talk to you. It's great to talk to you. And by the way, I have to add that the great Mike Myers says he's still waiting for the no talent police to come and arrest him. Yeah, the no talent police. It's so, so common. And it's one of those things when you when you mention it to somebody, they most of the time they go, oh, yeah, I know what that's like. So so let's start by defining imposter syndrome. Sure. It was actually originally coined as the imposter phenomenon because it was coined by a couple of uh, psychologists and and the word syndrome has a you know mental health kind of meaning in that world. But basically what they found, this is back in 1978, is that a lot of people deep down feel like they're really not as intelligent, capable, competent as everybody thinks they are. And what is so fascinating about it, Martin, is we have these feelings despite concrete evidence of our past accomplishments or achievements, but but still we're, we, we kind of dismiss those things. We chalk them up to external factors, luck, timing, connections, and we're left with this fear of being found out. That, that fear of being found out. So what are some of the, the tangible negative results of people suffering from imposter syndrome? Oh, that's a great question, because truly, this is not just an interesting self-help topic. Mm -hmm. There are costs and consequences for individuals, but also, I would say, for organizations um, as well. So these, these feelings translate into behaviors. When you feel like an imposter, you have to find a way unconsciously to kind of manage the anxiety of waiting for the no-talent police, right? <laughs> waiting to be 
found out and to avoid being found out. So for one person, it might be, I call it flying under the radar. So they don't speak up and ask questions in a meeting or a class. They don't go for more challenging opportunities or assignments. They stay in a job they've long outgrown and, you know, kind of keep, keep my head down, do my work and nobody will find out. On the other end is people who overwork, overprepare for absolutely everything that they do. And then when they're successful, they feel like, yeah, but it's only because I have to work harder than everybody else. Right. Uh, interesting. And I, I, how many people actually define their feelings as imposter syndrome? Do you think that a lot of people, maybe everybody, uh, has these kind of feelings, but they don't really process them or define them? You know, it, it's it's a tricky question, Martin, because a lot of people self-describe themselves as experiencing imposter syndrome when what they're really just describing is the normal anxiety going into a job interview, for example, or, you know, going on stage when you when you have stage fright, which is typical and normal. It doesn't necessarily mean you experience imposter syndrome, um, but it, it is phenomenally common. I think, honestly, that we should kind of be changing the conversation and to focus less on people who feel like imposters in it. That's still important, obviously, but to ask what's up with that minority of people who don't feel this way? Like, Interesting. Why aren't we studying them? You know, there are hundreds and hundreds of academic studies and dissertations written on imposter syndrome. I want to know more about the the people who don't feel this way. That's interesting because there, to me, in in sort of my experience, that's a very small uh, minority of people who don't feel some form of imposter syndrome. Yeah, this is you know this is the point in my presentation where I have to break it to my audience that they're not special, right? Like, <laughs> the majority of us feel this way. But here's the thing about that minority, Martin, is there's two factions there. There's people who have irrational self-confidence syndrome, right? right? Those are the people whose belief in their knowledge and abilities actually does far exceed their actual knowledge and abilities, right? That narcissistic kind of smartest guy in the room. None of us want to be that person, but there's a, a, a smaller percentage in, in that quote-unquote non-imposter group who we can learn from, people who are genuinely humble, but have never had imposter feelings. I, I refer to them as humble realists, and that's, for me, the goal is not to never feel like an imposter again, but to become a humble realist. And a humble realist. I like that. Uh, and it's funny to think of Tom Hanks. Because uh, he he seems like somebody who is a humble realist, but but it makes me wonder because you talk about different people and and probably the the strangest ones are the ones who have that irrational feeling of overconfidence. But is this just human nature? Do you feel like there maybe is some kind of evolutionary advantage for humans to downplay their competence? If that makes any sense. I don't know, because I'm not a psychologist or an anthropologist, so uh, I don't know. I know there are different factors. Let, let's take a lot of those folks that you described a minute ago. They're largely enter entertainers, actors, you know, Academy Award winning A-list kind of folks. When you're in a creative field, you know, I think we need to contextualize these things. When you're in a creative field, you're being judged by subjective standards, by people whose job title is professional critic, and you're only as good as your last book or your last performance. Then you have people in STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, medicine, who 
are in these very rapidly changing information dense fields where when you feel like an imposter, you feel like you should be able to keep up with everything when no human on the planet ever could. You see a lot of people at universities. I've spoken at you know five or six different universities in, in Canada, mostly to graduate students. And imposter phenomena is rampant in environments with a lot of highly educated people, like at a university. People sometimes say to me, this is crazy. I shouldn't feel like an imposter. I have a PhD. And I say, no, you feel like an imposter because you have a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> now people look at you a certain way. Oh, you must be smart. So I think we have to contextualize it, you know, and also if you're the only woman in the room, maybe you're the youngest person, you're the you're the indigenous person or the black person. You know, now you've got that kind of social pressure because of stereotypes about competence, intelligent. Now you like have to represent your entire group. So I think we have to put it in in different contexts and do less personalizing and more um, more contextualizing. Yeah, that's interesting. And going back to people in the creative field, like being on the radio, for example, I, I know people love to criticize people on radio and television, especially, you know, newscasters. They they just feel very free to throw out these, these criticisms that uh, I think a lot of times are unfair. They just don't like the sound of their voice or something. And uh, it, I think that's a very uh, a tough field to be in for this. Oh, absolutely. And so you raise a good point, Martin, because when you're in a in a creative field, for the most part, your work is also very public, mm -hmm. which is very different than being an engineer at Boeing, you know, or, or right. you know, working in, a, in, a, in an organization where, yeah, people on your project team know what you've done, but it's not out there in the world. Mm -hmm. We're talking to Dr. Valerie Young, an expert on imposter syndrome. And uh, maybe maybe you, you are, are thinking, yeah, I kind of feel that way. So what should people look for in their thinking? Because maybe a lot of people are experiencing this, but they're not really processing it. But what sort of um, specific things would you tell people to look for in their thinking? I really appreciate you framing it as in their thinking, because I think so often we look at it in terms of feelings, you know, and what everybody wants is to stop feeling like an imposter, but feelings are the last change. You know, if you, if you want to stop feeling like an imposter, you have to stop thinking like an imposter. So for me, the, the core source of imposter feelings, I mean, I mentioned some of the reasons, you know, occupational, situational, social but to me, the core source, Martin, is these unrealistic, unsustainable expectations we have about what it means to be competent. Like we have set the bar so high, we can hit it sometimes, right? That's the thing is we, we all have moments of brilliance where we go like, wow, that was pretty good. I'm a hot dog. And then we all have moments where it's like, oh, my God, that was the worst thing I've ever done. I couldn't think to save my life. And we throw ourselves to the other end of the continuum. So to me, it's about being kind of consciously aware of what is the conversation going on in my head when I'm having a normal imposter moment and how could I reframe that the way somebody who is humble but has never felt like an imposter would. Right. And and you've used the phrase owning your achievements. How how do you how do you go about doing that and how how important is that? Owning your I achievements. Yeah, I think it's really important cuz here's the thing with imposter syndrome is and this is what kills me. A lot of folks out there go make a list of your accomplishments. I keep a record of your accomplishments. I don't think Tom Hanks forgets that he won an <laughs> Academy, right? Or Viola Davis. I don't think they need a list. I mean, yes, is it helpful to remind yourself of this, some positive things you've done? But when we lean too 
far into that, we lose sight of the fact that, well, maybe tomorrow you're going to suck and that's okay too. <laughs> that's just real life. But to own our achievements, you know, people who feel like imposters, we do explain them away. We go, well, it was just a good audience. Or, well, that's just because they like me. That's why they said I was great. Or I had a great connection. And this is the way I look at it, that things like luck, timing, connections, even personality play a legitimate role in all of our success. Mm-hmm. It's what we do with these things that count. So owning them means to kind of step back and go, yeah, I, I did a good job. And yeah, maybe somebody helped me, but I'm the one who followed through and got yeah. it done. Yeah. And I think just listing your achievements could be sort of superficial because you mentioned Viola Davis. She just won the Emmy. So she's got an EGOT. She's got an Emmy, a Tony, an Oscar and uh, a Grammy. So that's, that's, I mean, you can't argue with that, but at the same time, if that's all you're hanging your hat on, I think that might be kind of a a weak structure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it doesn't prepare us for the inevitable kind of ups and downs of achievement. You know, we're going to have times when things don't work out, when we do fall flat on our face, where we are going to get some constructive criticism. I was actually speaking at University of BC and student came up to me afterwards. It was probably 300 people in this auditorium. He comes up to me afterwards and he leans in and he whispers. He says, I only believed half of what you said. I'm thinking, okay, I'll bite. <laughs> he explains to me, he really is an imposter because he failed his qualifying exam for the, for the PhD when he was at Oxford University. I said, well, that sucks, you know, obviously, but, but it doesn't mean you're an imposter. It means you failed your qualifying exam what how could you have done it differently what would you do differently if you could do it over again like what did you take away from that and learn from that you're not the first person to fail a qualifying exam something clearly went wrong let's take it apart and figure out what it was so you could fix it for next time yeah and i I guess owning your failures as well in a positive way is crucial absolutely absolutely and that's where all the focus on kind of lists of your accomplishments and kind of positive self-talk it's not going to help if you're crushed by even constructive feedback. You know, I, I was speaking at NASA and an engineer said to me, she had her performance review and her boss told her five things where she was outstanding. And then she said, is there someplace I could improve? And I said, great, that's an excellent question. And she said, yeah, but then he criticized me and I was depressed for weeks. <laughs> and I said, do you mind if I ask what the criticism was? And she said, yeah, he said, I could have delegated more in my last project. I said, no, that wasn't criticism. That was information, right? He sees you operating on a higher level. So it's not just about embracing our successes. It's about having a realistic understanding of the value of feedback, positive and negative, and and developing a healthy response to failure, mistakes, and setbacks. Mm-hmm. And and this kind of uh, imposter syndrome that we're talking about, is it something that happens more with women, especially in the corporate world, because I imagine it's so male dominated that it might be something that that happens to women more than men. You know, the research is mixed on that. Um, you know, some research finds it pretty equally equal, especially as you get older. For younger uh, undergraduate students at universities, it does seem to be higher amongst women. I think there's some self esteem things happening in that those age groups. Um, evens out often in um, you know men and women in, in the corporate world and, and mid-career. Um, but I don't see a lot of studies that find it higher amongst men. But I also want to really dispel the myth of the ever-confident male. Mm-hmm. 
there are a lot of men who identify with imposter syndrome, especially if they have any kind of emotional intelligence and could be kind of self-reflective, you know, on their insecurities and self-doubts, then yeah, they're going to talk about it as well. And perhaps uh, men are, are a little less willing to express those negative feelings, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think right now kind of vulnerability and transparency is all the rage in <laughs> settings. Uh, you know, women have been doing that for years. We just call the true confessions before. Oh, you like the presentation? Well, let me tell you, did you see the typo on page three? Uh, <laughs> so there's a lot more, you know, of that kind of sharing of one's, you know, self-doubt and vulnerabilities, which I think is important. I mean, so much of our work is in corporations and working with leaders. And if people at very high levels can can normalize imposter syndrome and say, oh, of course, I, I definitely feel this way or I felt this way many times in my life. And here's why. And here's how I dealt with it. And, you know, it's a, you might expect it. Don't worry about it. That can be tremendously helpful. And this kind of science of imposter syndrome is relatively new. And you travel all over the world and you work with corporations. I guess that's a big part of what you do. Uh, you must come across people who who say like, I never thought of that before, but yes. I mean, it must, you must come across people who have this sudden realization that, oh yeah, that's me. Oh, absolutely. And, and that alone can be very liberating, Martin, to go, wait a minute, there's a name for this. <laughs> other people feel that way too. So to find out this is a, a collective experience, I think in and of itself um, can be very powerful. Yeah, and I was going to ask if there's certain uh, fields of of business or occupations, but you kind of answered that. But um, I mean, what are some of the surprising cases that you've seen and in in industries that you would think would never happen? Gosh, I don't know about an industry where I would think it would never happen. I can, you know, on the reverse of that, you see it a lot in in medicine. And again, in universities, and I think that goes to organizational culture. There are certain organizational cultures that fuel self-doubt. You know, in, in I was speaking at Stanford, and a young man raised his hand, and he said, uh, "What would you say if you're in a culture where there's a lot of shaming?" I said, "Are you in medicine?" He said, "Yes, right, because <laughs> they, right? they, they they shame the attendees and the students for not knowing information." In the UK. The highest grade medical students can get on their final exam is no concern. We have no concerns about you, Martin. Like that's the best you could do after like working so hard all these years. The point that I make to, to those audiences is you probably did not know this was the culture that you were signing up for, but this is the culture you're in. And when you understand that, you can make it less about you and understand this is the culture that I'm in. It's like universities. It's a culture of critique. Nobody is writing in the margin of your proposals or your journal article, you know, great point, compelling analysis. All they're doing is pointing out the flaws. Mm -hmm. And if you're not steeled with that knowledge that this is the culture, you, you'll think, oh, I'm a horrible writer. I don't belong here. I'm not a scholar. And I could see how that would be really prevalent in medicine because it's so important that you present this air of competence because you're, you know, it's life or death in some cases, and you really can't <laughs> express feelings of uh, concern for your competence. Absolutely. And it's an area that does require a certain amount of functional perfectionism, because as you said, we're dealing with life and death. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, if you leave our audience with anything, um, if people are listening and they're, you know, no matter what kind of business they're in and they're sort of thinking, yeah, I, I feel that kind of imposter syndrome sometimes. It's very normal. But what 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 would you tell them? What advice would you give them? Just obviously, uh, you can't really give us too much of advice. But what's the first thing you would tell somebody? I would actually tell them three things. Normalize it, right? Put it into context and so you can step back. And so the question becomes not why could I, why do I feel like an imposter, but how could I not? Right? It makes perfect sense. Reframe competence is the second one. And then to keep going regardless of how you feel. And what I mean by that is often we think we're kind of waiting until we feel more confident before we start our business or try to get our art into a gallery or you know whatever it is that we want to achieve. And that's not how it works, right? You have to change your thoughts first, even though you don't believe the new thoughts, then change your behaviors to act like somebody who really did believe the new thoughts. And over time, the, the confidence and the feeling will catch up. I guess, I don't know if the phrase fake it till you make it <laughs> applies. But uh, that kind of reduces it too much. But yeah, because I did notice in in one of your talks, you you talked about the difference between feeling confident and acting confident. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I we we to me confidence is let me let me change that. Competence is not knowing with confidence. In other words, I want somebody to be the person in the room who confidently raises your hand and says, "Excuse me, I don't understand." Could you explain that a different way? I'm not following, right? We don't do that because we're afraid other people will think we're quote unquote stupid. But if, if we can kind of project this air of confidence, like I have just as much right as anybody else to ask a question and it's normal to ask a question, it's going to kind of come through. So even if you're scared of present, you know, public speaking, which it's the number one fear, number two is death, <laughs> to remember that your body doesn't know the difference between fear and excitement. So just to get out there, Tell yourself, I'm excited uh, and act confident even when you don't want 100% feel it. Some great advice from Dr. Valerie Young, an expert on imposter syndrome. She's the co-founder of the Imposter Syndrome Institute, and they have a website, impostersyndrome.com. And her book is The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. Well, uh, Dr. Young, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Martin. This is The Shift Podcast. System breach. What just happened? Someone hacked me! All right. Thanks for being here, Hank. Hi. Hey, man. My pleasure, Martin. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm pretty good. So explain to me how this works. So the car fob only works when it's beside the car. But if you have the fob inside a house, then somehow these hackers can get the information and they just reproduce it. How does that work? Yeah, so um, the, the technology itself, so it's it's keyless entry for, for vehicles or passive keyless entry. And, uh, uh, you know, oddly enough, it's the technology has been around since the 90s, but it, it hasn't been until recently that 
uh, kind of a Western criminal market has been able to get their hands on these devices. But what they do is uh, when you walk up to your car and if your car has that, that keyless entry feature enabled, your key fob has the ability to, when you pull on the door handle, the car gives out a signal, the key fob accept the, accepts the signal and, and it forwards its own version back to the car. And, and this kind of allows this level of convenience where you can walk up to your car and you can pull the door handle open and it unlocks automatically. But what, what these the criminals have kind of realized is uh and and if you go on youtube and search passive relay attack um you can see videos of this happening they'll actually walk up to a house or an office or or a shopping market and they'll hold up an antenna to relay the signal from the vehicle to the key fob whether it be on your table in your pocket you, you know wherever it is and and of course, this allows them to unlock the car. But even further is that cars with with the go feature enabled, uh, the, it allows you to start the car if the key fob is present. So um, I, I think one of the reasons that we're seeing such an uptick in car thefts is because of devices like these becoming more available from a Russian market. And And I guess that's kind of one of the indirect results we've seen from, uh, you know, Russian state-sponsored cyber attacks is the the increased availability of hacking tools for for criminals. Right, and I, I want to get into that, but I also I'm I'm curious when you start the car with the with the information and then you drive out of range, so so you you can't start the car again. You just basically have to get it somewhere. Yeah, so I guess that's kind of the caveat for these guys is once they start the car and they've actually got it you know, driving away. Um, if the vehicle turns off, then, you know, they can't get it started again unless they can replay that that attack, which only has about, I would say, a 100 to 200 meter range. Uh, so it's, you know, it's until the car turns off or they run out of gas. But the thing is that these criminals have the ability to drive them to, you know, a warehouse or a garage or whatever, and they can actually reprogram the vehicle to accept a new car fob. And, and that's the big problem is, you know, they clone the VIN or they, they change the VIN. And now you have uh, what looks like a, a brand new vehicle on, on the street or being sold foreign. Right. And how close do they have to be to the fob to get the information? Uh, to, for the, the fob range it's it's only like 100 200 meters so they they can actually like as long as it's inside of the house or uh you know that there's instances of this happening at at the shopping mall where they'll kind of have one guy sitting inside of the cafeteria with one antenna and the other guy is sitting by a, a car in the parking lot that has passive keyless entry enabled and they're kind of seeing if they get lucky and if they're able to relay that key. So it's only about a 200 meter range. Right. And d does the house help block it a little bit? Is that what you were saying? You know, the, the house and, and walls like thick concrete and whatever will, will help block it to a degree. But the ultimate solution is like you were saying at the start with the Faraday pouches. Uh, there's a pretty good solution on Amazon um, it's like a Faraday box and there's a Faraday pouch available 
uh, and I'm making one myself that might be a little bit more comfortable for users to carry around in their pockets. Yeah. So is it more likely that it's outside, like at a shopping mall or in your home that they steal this? You know, unfortunately, I think it's more likely that it's going to be in the privacy of your own home that these criminals come, you know, usually overnight and they try and relay the signal from the key to the car to drive away with it surreptitiously or, or undetected. Right. So is this similar to credit cards and and can they do sort of similar things to credit card information? You know, I'm, I'm actually really happy you say that because it, it's exactly the same kind of attack as someone doing like an NFC relay attack. If we think of the tap pay on our, our cards, they they work with near field communication. And it, it's not possible now as much as it was before in, in North America, but criminals used to be able to relay that tap pay information from the card in your wallet to a payment system. And that's why you know, if, if you're traveling abroad outside of North America, there are still old payment systems that support these these functions. So uh, that's why it's a good idea to have one of those RFID blocking cards in your wallet. If you've ever heard of uh, like a signal blocking or RFID blocking card. Right. Yeah, because when I got a smart license uh, and it had passport information, it came with this sort of metallic pouch. Uh, so I guess that's what that was. Um, and I noticed today I was in a store and I was buying something and I was tapping it and I was trying to tap it and it kept saying only put one card. It said, we will only accept one card at once. And then the guy said, oh, you have to, uh, move your wallet away because it was reading the other information on those cards. And that's kind of the scary thing is like the distance that these things can work at. Someone can bump into you on the train and, you know, maybe where the the payment attack might not work in North America, it's still very possible for someone to copy your RFID access key um, that you might keep on your keychain or whatever. And so that's why these pouches are, are a really good idea. And uh, and these devices are just becoming cheaper and cheaper for, for criminals to get. Right. We're talking to Hank the Hacker about these uh, Faraday pouches that you can put your car key fob in to protect you from crooks using technology to steal that information and then steal your car. And uh, how is this stuff made? Like, it, what's the, I guess, people are making it and where do they, do they sell it on the dark web? How, what's the, the, the sort of process for this stuff being sold and used? So we're kind of before we had like, you know, I guess one kind of underreported fact or maybe unrealized is like the, you know, the increased exposure of these Russian made devices used in cybercrime. And, uh, you know, where we, we had a device that previously would have been harder to obtain and, and especially closed source, which means, you know, the, the, the programming and, and the hardware involved for creating your own device would usually be kept very close and very secret. But um, it, it just became a lot easier uh, for things like this keyless go repeater where, um, you know, you can go online and it, you don't have to go on the dark web or anything anymore. And you can actually purchase one of these devices right now. I think they're going for between ten and fifteen thousand dollars. But 
Um, there was even an article on Vice last year with a guy called Evan Connect, and he's just openly marketing that. Um, usually they'll say, you know, we sell these things as testing devices and they're meant for ethical testing and whatever, but um, th their, their market is very clearly defined where, you know, we look at the other ethical testing devices and they're not being sold for $15,000. Wow. So, so 15 grand to buy this, it must mean that most of the people who are using this are organized and organizations and uh, it, it must go very high up. Yeah, absolutely. Like you, you don't have uh, just kind of your your basement research or even really getting their hands on one of these without going through, you know, a really strenuous um, contact flow. It's not like you can even just click a button and purchase the device. You actually have to talk to the developers of the device themselves. And um, most cases they're coming from Bulgaria. So you either have to purchase with cryptocurrency and gamble on it showing up, or I think that they actually expect people to show up to Bulgaria. So it would definitely be a, a bit of a more organized scene. Wow. So are, are there sort of hotspots around the world for this? Well, I think America, with that Evan Connect story that I mentioned earlier, I think that America and the re one of the reasons that we're seeing such an increase in these devices becoming available is because of people like the, the Evan Connect one, where the, the device is being sold within North America to a North American audience. And as a result, we see a, a massive spike in, in vehicle thefts in this year alone compared to last year and and even the year before that and and before that yeah so and these these cars and trucks they probably get like chopped up immediately or or what what happens to them generally do you know well the the scary thing is they just in most cases with the organized section is they can just clone the VIN or they change whatever information they need to change and the car ends up being sold to a foreign market. And mo most often it's sold to an unsuspecting buyer. Like they don't realize that they're buying um, a vehicle that was stolen in North America and being reshipped over the seas. Right. And it's probably generally really expensive cars that get stolen in this way. Um, the, you can actually see the data. It's public right now. I think one of the most popular ones that we're seeing is the Ford F-150. And <laughs> um, next to that, I think it was the Lexus RX. And it, like the, the really alarming thing here is if manufacturers take a moment to like really prioritize their customers' investments, investing in their product uh, and, and their privacy, if you will, um, it, it's not hard to fix this vulnerability by taking, you know, into, uh, like taking into factor the distance that the car fob is away from the car or the time that it took giving like tighter time constraints between that signal being relayed. It's a very, very cheap, cheap, easy fix. Right. And these uh, Faraday bags are cheap. You can get them on Amazon, or if you live in Brampton, you get one for free. Um, is there something you could do right now in your house? Like put it under a, you know, like a cast iron skillet or something? 
you know, um, a lot of fobs actually, and because of this being a problem since the 90s, just kind of a little known one, uh, a lot of these key fobs actually have the ability to turn off. If, if you look at the user manual or you look up on Google, um, the user instruction manual for your key fob, there's usually a way that you can disable the fob for while you're sleeping or, or if you're not using it. Um, but, you know, past wrapping it in tinfoil or something, uh, I think that it would really be nice to see Calgary start handing out some of these Faraday pouches, if not just to critical workers and critical transport transportation drivers. Right. And I guess there'll probably be a day when, when you buy a car and they give you the fobs, they'll come in a pouch or maybe they don't want, they don't want to deal with it. I don't know. I'm surprised they don't already, you know, that again, that's another good solution and it wouldn't be that cheap, you know, or that expensive, sorry, to just include a, a small Faraday pouch with your, your new $60,000 vehicle. Yeah. Cause I could see it becoming, you know, like a, like an iPhone jacket, you know what I mean? You could have a Pokemon on it or something. It could be sort of a stylish accessory. Yeah, it's very good marketing opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So, uh, uh, so get yourself a Faraday bag. Well, thank you so much, Hank. Uh, interesting stuff. We're we're getting some texts about people who are who are nervous about it, and uh, so uh, uh, I appreciate that. Thanks, Hank. Thank you. And yeah, if you're nervous, just go out and get a Faraday pouch. I'm going to try and release my own too locally. Maybe I can update you guys on the shift about that. But thanks for having me, Martin. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with the Big Mac? Oh, you know, the Big Mac. It's, look, there's other great fast food burgers out there. I like the Whopper. I like Dave's Double from Wendy's. You know, like those are all great. But at the end of the day, honestly, I think the Big Mac is still just the the best i think it's yeah. the most consistently good one and what is it about the big mac i have an opinion on this but i i think yep. you would agree with me what's the thing okay. that sets the big mac apart from all the other you know franchise burgers like uh, whopper and stuff well it's important to establish the ingredients was jono could you actually play that first uh, little clip for me here to all the and special sauce lettuce cheese pickles onions on a sesame seed bun Oh, yeah. To that, all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. And that's the thing is the Big Mac. I, th I love to add tomato and lots of other ingredients to my burger. The Big Mac, aside from the pickles, because I do not like McDonald's pickles, I don't touch it. The, it's just it's just the perfect recipe. And the thing that ties it all together is the sauce. Like yeah. When there's so much sauce that like when you take the burger out of the little container and there's some like lettuce left over and some sauce and then you dip your fries in that and you make like a weird almost poutine with it. It's just special. It's just, it's a magical thing. Yeah. That, that sauce, I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it's not like, like the, uh, Colonel Sanders recipe. It, I, I don't think it would be that hard to reproduce, but there is it's something, not. something special about the, the Big Mac sauce. Um, and uh, Big Mac sauce can only be found on a Big Mac or if you ask for it. But right now, right now, you can get Big Mac sauce whenever you want it or, you know, 
wherever, whatever. Uh, Big Mac sauce dip cups are now available in restaurants, but only for a limited time. So there you go. Um, this is good news. And a lot of people are reacting very well to this. They're really enjoying it uh, because like people have been saying that they've been forcing the staff to fill up little cups for years. Uh, and uh, 10 years ago, like we were saying about the recipe, you know, like uh, the 11 herbs and spices of the uh, Colonel Sanders chicken recipe, that one seems very um, kind of a secret thing. I don't know if they've ever made that public. Do you think? Oh, ever? no, it's like Coca-Cola. I don't think they will ever... You know, it's like if you compare KFC to Popeye's, Popeye's has like better breading and like better portion, but KFC chicken has better seasoning. And yeah. it's like their secret weapon. They will never, ever share what that secret is. Never. Well, well, you know, 10 years ago, McDonald's actually revealed the secret to the sauce on, uh, on the YouTube. We're going to make a version of the Big Mac with ingredients that are similar that you could buy at your local grocery store. In a video posted on YouTube, McDonald's executive chef Dan Coudreau takes to the kitchen and finally reveals the makings of one of the fast food industry's best kept secrets. So here we have some store-bought mayonnaise, we have some sweet pickle relish, and then we have a classic yellow mustard. And to round out the recipe, a white wine vinegar, garlic powder, onion powder, and then paprika in the paprika. It gives a little flavor. So why spill the sauce now? It's all part of a new McDonald's initiative to be more transparent with their products. Yeah, so that was 10 years mm. ago, but now you can actually get a cup of... Uh, a little a dipping sauce. Big Mac sauce. Because it is like ranch dressing with something else. Yeah, or a thousand... I think it's or thousand technically islands. thousand Not island ranch dressing. dressing. Yeah, thousand island dressing. When he was describing it, the, all of the ingredients made sense, except the one that surprised me was the rice wine vinegar, which... Yeah, it's usually like something you wouldn't expect that ties it all together. But uh, I haven't tried making it on my own, although I am thinking I will. I will try that and compare. But the fact that, you know what, actually, this is a perfect opportunity to do that. I can go to McDonald's and buy the fries and get the sauce. And then at home that night, I'll try to make the burger myself. And then if it's disappointing, I won't, I'll at least have some sauce. You know, it won't be a total loss. Mm -hmm. And somebody just texts, texted us and said they sold Big Mac sauce and filet of fish sauce in the grocery stores, didn't sell. And I don't remember that. I vaguely remember pictures of that, and I think I know why. It's because if you buy it in store, I think there's this expectation it's not going to be as good as the thing in the restaurant. You know, Nando's sauce. Nando's is my favorite chicken. You can buy that in the grocery store, but it still tastes better at the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, somebody else wrote, uh, Big Macs make you feel logy. Uh, five Guys burgers are way tastier. Which okay, it, uh, well, yeah. Yeah, that's probably true. And uh, we, yeah. should we go to the phone? Should we go to the phone? We have uh, Marianne from up. Calgary. Or should we just keep on with the are you okay with? Oh, no, we can. We, well, if she's got something to add about the Big oh, Mac. Oh, I mean. Marianne's shy. She doesn't want to be on air. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> she just had an opinion and she just wanted. Well, let's continue. Are you okay with Starbucks. Okay, well, here's a millennial's opinion on Starbucks. Right. Yes, yes, it's, <laughs> it's awesome. Starbucks is awesome. It's, uh, you know, it, it's good coffee. I think it's objectively good coffee. Uh, and I think there's this sort of expectation that if you go there, you're going to over, it's super expensive. But, you know, my order at Starbucks is pretty cheap. I don't get a crazy 
latte with like 15 different ingredients or and any of that. No, no, no. I just, I just like their roast. I like the way they put it all together. I like the cups and I like walking into a Starbucks. I, I am, I am, I am a okay with Starbucks. Yeah. I don't mind Starbucks. I, I like a, uh, you know, a corner store, more independent thing, but Starbucks, you, yeah, of course. you, you know what you're going to get. And sometimes, sometimes you get a cup of coffee somewhere, it's bitter or it's not really what you wanted. But with Starbucks, I can go in, I always get a coconut latte. Coconut latte? Mm. Yeah, it's coconut milk. And it's you know, a little bit sweet, but not too sweet. And yep. you know exactly what it's going to taste like. And uh, it's good. It's a little expensive. But uh, so I'm okay. I think Starbucks kind of gets a bad rap. Maybe they deserve it on some levels. You know? Oh, yeah, sure. Of course, on some levels. And uh, uh, it's interesting when you compare the prices because my order at Starbucks is $5.75. It's just a large latte, venti latte. No yeah. no special oat milk or soy milk. Nope, just regular milk and their roast. That's it. When I was in Las Vegas over the in November at the airport, I ordered a medium sugar cookie oat latte that in Canada, that's about a buck more expensive. It's like six or seven bucks Right at the U S airport for a grande. It was nine 50 American. It was almost Not like really? 12, $13 Canadian, the markup. And so that's the weird thing about Starbucks is you can get a drink there for a pretty okay, pretty average price, or you're going to get absolutely just ripped off even if it tastes pretty good. Yeah, like the the more shishi it gets, the you know, oat milk yeah. and all those things that it, it does go up in price. And you'd no think fancy. it oatmeal or oat milk should be cheaper. I would think than milk. I don't know. That's a good question. Well, you got to you got to get up early to milk the oats. Yes. So that's a lot of work. True. I eat a lot of I, I eat a lot of oat milk myself. Like <laughs> milk. It's I, better than soy milk. Yeah, I think so. I think it's more sustainable and stuff. Um and uh, somebody just wrote, uh, I like hot chocolate and donuts when I'm in the mood. <laughs> yeah, right. You can't go wrong. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, you were saying how expensive it is, uh, especially in the United States. But a couple in the United States have just purchased the most expensive cup of coffee ever sold at Starbucks. It was $4,444.44. That $4,444.44 was the tip taken on top of their order, making the total cost of two cups of coffee $4,456.27. For this to happen was just a real... <laughs> it's just a, it's, it's a real shock. They got the coffee from this drive-through at 91st in Yale. Jesse says he selected no tip on the card machine and didn't get a receipt. A couple of days later, Dee Dee was trying to buy their four daughters shoes at the mall when her card was declined. They got this duplicate receipt and say Starbucks told them there'd been a network error with the card machine and after speaking to managers, they were sent two checks. But when they arrived, they bounced. They contacted their, their customer service helpline probably 30 40 times that day they assured us that they are sending new checks but as of today we still have not fully finished the situation we still haven't received checks that's from fox 35 jesse claims they have not heard from starbucks since they were told that new checks would be sent and uh they hope that uh, this clears up and everything's fine but imagine how terrifying that would be because you'd, it's pro terrifying. you'd probably know in your heart that there's no way this 
this could be right and they'll, they'll fix it. But then there's always that thought that they might be hard asses about it. Yeah. And I feel like if you work in the store, okay, so if I was working in a coffee shop and I saw a tip that was $4,444.44, I would immediately like run out of the coffee shop and be like, uh, excuse me, did you intentionally leave the most ridiculously large tip ever left at a Starbucks? And so I feel like there's a little bit of, you know, miscommunication stuff happening at the actual store itself. And then I don't know why I've... Like I would, if I was in that situation, I wouldn't, I'd be like, you don't send me a check. You send me an e-transfer right now. Exactly. Right now. And I maybe because as far as I know, in the United States, you still cannot, you do an e-transfer. You have to use an app like Cash App. They do not have uh, bank transfers like we do in Canada. So maybe that's why, but the whole check thing and that, that process, and you, even if you know the money's coming, that agonizing way to get it back would yeah. be just the longest week of your life. Yeah. And Jesse's advice to everybody is get a receipt. And he has a receipt that proves he purchases purchased two of the most expensive coffees in the world. Um, are you okay with old dogs? Old dogs. They just have a little, they're very peaceful, you know, like mm-hmm. they're just very calm very, uh, usually, you know, they're really well behaved. You know, it can be difficult. Uh, when I first started dating Laura, my partner, uh, they had a, uh, beagle who was, I want to say at least thir- 12 or 13. And she has unfortunately since passed. And that it was interesting because she was such a lovely dog, but at the same time you have to watch, you know, be very frail and yeah. a lot of care and it's quite heavy on the family. So I think it's a, a very mixed bag of emotions trying to take care of and be, and, and, and also enjoy their company. But I think all in all, like what a dog is at the end of their life is, is quite beautiful and kind of really sums up the reason why you get a dog in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got used to having an old dog. I had an old golden retriever named Bella who was like quite old. I'm not exactly sure how old she was, but she was getting close to like 14 pretty old for a golden retriever. Yeah. Right. And well, we got her when she was five, so I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I know she was over 12 and uh, she was really old and she was in great, great health, but she was just getting so frail. And I got so used to having this old, old dog. And then uh, she left, uh, left this plane uh, beautifully, I might add. She had a great life and it was really lovely. So Bella left and then we got Gallup. (laughs) <laughs> and the name might sort of tip off what she was like. She's a, a rescue dog from India. And uh, she's like, I think I said this yesterday, she's like if you crossed a golden retriever with a whippet. And she's, <laughs> she's really fast. So I went from having a really old dog to a really young, agile dog that needed to run. And uh, both good and bad. Both good yeah, and bad. Yeah, I imagine. Yeah, both good and bad. And which is also funny because you went to Gallup and Laura, after their beagle passed, they got a golden retriever right. at like six weeks. And <laughs> yeah, up until I want to say like less than a year ago, she's almost three now, she was basically pure chaos in a controlled and loving way, but chaos. 
and a lot. And now she's starting to finally calm down and be just like a normal dog. But man, oh man, that's it. It must be jarring. I can't imagine. Yeah, I think uh, three, in my opinion, is when dogs finally just start to mellow out. It takes a long time, but uh, but it's totally worth it. You know, it pays off. You know, having a puppy. Uh, well, anyway, the average lifespan for a dog is. Uh, between 10 and 13 years, though there is a variability between breeds and si uh, sizes of dogs. And one dog in Portugal has defied the odds. You know, the average is 10 to 13 years. Uh, this dog has defied the odds by a staggering amount. Bobby, the Portuguese guard dog, can legally rent a car in the U.S. He's 30. When his dog was born in a tiny village in central Portugal, Leonel Costa was only eight. Little did he know the beloved pup would literally grow up to make history. Back then, Costa's family had many animals and little money, so his father used to bury newborn puppies rather than keep them. But Bobby was smart, realized what he was doing, and hid among a pile of firewood. Costa and his siblings found him a few days later and kept it a secret until the puppy opened its eyes. Cut to several decades later when Costa got in touch with officials at the Guinness World of Records, submitted all the paperwork, which is how Bobby was officially named the oldest dog on record. Costa told Reuters he's so proud of the feat that he can't explain it, especially since some people told them they would not make it. Guinness World Records called Bobby's story miraculous. In fact, Bobby broke an almost century-old record held by an Australian cattle dog that died at 29 years and five months in 1939. 30 years old, a dog. That's insane. Older than me. And <laughs> dog is older than me. Oh, <laughs> that dog could teach you a thing or two. Yeah, uh, I'm sure he would. Because it, whenever I see the oldest dog in the world, when they show them, they're often those Australian kind of shepherd dogs. Shepherds are like and, this really small. There's, yeah, like Chihuahua or something. They're small and they ru they run fast and they're so yep. smart. Those dogs, they're so smart. They and they really want to please. I love those dogs. I think that's great. Um, uh, that that report was from Inside Edition, and Bob's age uh, has been validated. Uh, by the Portuguese government pet database. So they're not just uh, exaggerating. It's managed by the National Union of Veterinarians. And uh, according to the BBC, Mr. Costa says Bobby has enjoyed a relatively trouble-free life and believes the secret to his longevity is the calm, peaceful environment he lives in. So that's kind of uh, nice. That seems like valid advice for uh humans <laughs> as yeah. well finding a calm peaceful uh, place to live out your life yeah. yeah and that that it's sort of funny uh it's it's always like uh when people when it's humans and they get named as the the oldest person on earth or the oldest person in canada or whatever um it usually doesn't you know it's great for the time being but they usually don't have much time to enjoy that title and no and that kind of happened to uh uh, Spike the Chihuahua. Uh, he was just uh, two weeks ago named the oldest dog in the world at just 23 years old. So Spike the Chihuahua for two weeks was officially the oldest dog at 23. That was until Bobby came along. So uh, Spike's practically a teenager. How does 
that happen? Like I imagine the process at the Guinness World Records takes longer than two weeks. So I, I wonder if they were processing both of these claims at the same time. The one finished first and the other second. Yeah. And there was no communication because imagine that you get the plaque. You're so proud. And then surprise, this dog's seven years older than you. Sorry, yeah. record broken. That's just not ah. But a, a savage thirty-year-old dog, and uh, and uh, somebody texted. Well said, Ryan. My old friend Farley, a beautiful black cocker spaniel, lived to sixteen and three-quarter wonderful years. Every time I came down the street to come home, uh, I would know he or he'd know the dog would know, and it would be waiting. Um, at the door for me at night at this in the summertime, I'll never forget his shadow at the front door, even on his last year when sick, he'd be there. That's Dave in the taxi and awesome. Drumheller. That's lovely. I remember Great my story. parents had a dog named Raisin and uh, it was, a, it was a beagle and it used, when it got old, uh, it used to sleep on the lazy boy in the living room upstairs and you'd come in the door late at night. And when I would stay there, I would come in late at night and the dog would be too lazy to come down and greet me. But you would hear this. And that was his tail wagging on the chair. Aww, that was a good old raisin. That was a raisin. That. Yeah, <laughs> I loved raisin, raisin the beagle. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.